Let's bow together as we come into our study of God's Word today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, going chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're in chapter 6 today. Let's pray. Father, this is Your Word, and there are things about it that we're still trying to learn and understand and comprehend. Would You please be our teacher today? You said Your Spirit would lead us into truth. Would You lead us into that truth today? For we need truth in the midst of the confusing and difficult world that we're in. We entrust ourselves to you for these moments as we together open this passage and study it. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible is filled with great stories of men and women who walked with God, people that are wonderful examples to us of living for for the Lord in a fallen, messed up world, and they just keep hanging on and hanging on to the Lord, and they keep their eyes on the Lord, and they, they really put into life this whole thing of living by faith and what that means. They understand, and so they stand as great examples to you and me, despite their humanity and their occasional falls. They finished all the way to the end of their lives. They finished well. These are the kind of examples we look up to. Today, we are looking at one of those. In fact, we are looking at the premier example, the one who the Lord Jesus said, no one greater than him in history. This guy, he came from a very unusual, miraculous start and birth in life. His parents were much older, beyond childbearing years, yet God caused conception. He was born. From early on in his life, he was a Nazarite, a special spiritual vow where never cut his hair and never drank strong alcoholic beverages and never touched anything dead. He was committed to a life of separation and holiness before God. He was incredibly bold. He stood up against religious leaders who were off track. He stood against the king himself. I'm referring to John. We sometimes call him John the Baptist, not that he was Baptist in his denomination, but because he baptized people. He went around preparing people for the fact that Jesus was coming. And to prepare people, part of their preparation was repenting of their sins and then being baptized to show they were part of that movement getting ready for Jesus. Jesus said of John and John uh, said of Mark in, John, in Matthew chapter 11 verse 11 I tell you the truth among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist In Luke chapter uh, uh, 7 Jesus said of John the Baptist there's none greater than John he is at the top of the peak humanly the top of the pack humanly speaking I'm reading today from Mark chapter 6. I certainly urge you to open your Bibles at home, here in the auditorium. There's Bibles under the seats in the auditorium if you need one. Mark chapter 6. This is a little bit of a long passage, verses 14 to 29, but this will give us great insight on John. Here's how to live, here's how to die. John is our example, a faithful man of God. 
King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. And he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leaders of leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask for, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with a request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this portion of his word. And may he help us to understand it and apply it. Now let's examine these verses a little more closely. Let's dig in. This is quite a story, almost like a soap opera in many ways. It would be easy to get caught up in the two main characters of John and Herod, and certainly that's an important aspect of this. Of course, there's also Herodias, Herod's wife, that he stole from his brother. He stole his brother's wife, yes, and Herodias' daughter. We know from Jewish history her name was Salome. Why is this story here, though? I mean, is is Mark on some kind of a rabbit trail? Is he simply filling in words or something? No, no, this is a very important moment. In fact, Jesus is in a major transition of his ministry, and that's why this story is inserted here by Mark. Jesus has come to the point of realizing he's been doing the ministry himself and his disciples have been following along. 
John, who came to prepare the way for him, is now dead. Jesus knows he's next up. His death is coming. He must prepare his disciples to carry on when he is dead. After his resurrection, he ascends back to heaven. The disciples have to carry this work on. So in the verses preceding this, Jesus has just sent his disciples out two by two. And now Mark tells us why this was a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From this point on, Jesus is pouring into his disciples, getting them ready. He knows he's next up. So often in the Old Testament, the prophets were persecuted, and some of them were martyrs, just like John, persecuted, martyred. Jesus persecuted, he'll be martyred as well. He will die. Mark is not wasting words. John the Baptist came to prepare people for the Messiah, and he's dead. Jesus is now center stage, but he is next. So Mark flashes back to these words of what happened with John to give us some of the story that up until this point we really didn't have. We start with verses 14 and 15 looking at the popular attitudes regarding Jesus. The popular attitudes of the day. There's always people got attitudes on Jesus and thinking, you know, he's this, he's that, or whatever. In verse 14, Herod heard about this, for Jesus had become quite well known. What is the this that Herod heard about? He heard about Jesus and his miracles and his teaching and his controversial nature to his ministry, and he's the ruler of the area. And when somebody's big and famous and controversial, Herod's going to hear about it. He had also heard that Jesus was spreading his ministry by sending out his disciples two by two. When Herod heard about this, Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. And here's the attitude. Some were saying, oh, he's John the Baptist. That's the first of three. Oh, he's John the Baptist. Everybody knew John was dead, but the assumption here is that John was resurrected from the dead, and now he comes back not just with his strong words, but with healing powers as well. So they're thinking Jesus is nothing more than a resurrected John the Baptist. That was one popular attitude. The second, a little, little bit later on, see in yellow there, it says, he's Elijah. Some really thought Jesus was Elijah. The Old Testament prophesied that one would come, and Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. That was John the Baptist. They're thinking Jesus is Elijah coming to prepare for the Messiah. And the third group, some just thought he was one of the prophets like long ago. One of the ones that would stand up against religious hypocrisy and call it to task. You know, as I look at these three popular attitudes about Jesus, I can't help but think in the last 2,000 years, there's not a whole lot that's changed. People still have attitudes today towards Jesus. Mentalities, always oh, this, he's that, he's whatever. And so many people miss the fact that he was God in the flesh, came to be a sacrifice for our sins, providing us salvation. The next couple of verses take us on to show us Herod's attitude towards Jesus. Herod adopted the first of those three opinions, but when Herod heard this about Jesus and what had happened, he says, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. A little bit of superstition here, thinking John's raised from the dead, and maybe some guilt on Herod's part. He shouldn't have beheaded him. He's come back from the dead to get me, I guess. I don't know. That's Herod's idea. 
in verse 16. Herod's an interesting person in New Testament. By the way, there's several Herods in the New Testament times. This particular one will stand out to us, particularly by the end of the sermon. Herod's attitude is superstitious. It's guilt-ridden. In verses 17 and 18, we get some of the story of Herod and what happened with his new wife, Herodias. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and put him in bound and put him in prison. He did this, and here's the rationale of why he had him in prison. Because his wife, Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Herod actually, he's ruler, he'll do what he wants. He liked his brother's wife, so he went and got her. And she was glad to marry up, and you know, now she's ruler's wife. You're out, Philip. Herod's going to do what he wants. And for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Think of the gall of this man to stand up for righteousness against even the king. I mean, he's got some real holy guts here. Now, obviously, Herod puts him in jail. He doesn't want to be spoken against, but he's protecting John from execution. I want to say something about the imprisonment here. There, there might be something that would give you hope. John's in prison. Archaeologists believe they have found the prison where John was. When Emily and I were in Israel some months ago, we visited a prison like that. I can't remember if it was John's or not, but it's about two stories underground. Dark, damp. Now remember, John was a man of the wilderness. He liked it open. Now he's enclosed in a dungeon, two stories below ground level, no light. Do you remember while John was in prison, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus, and he questioned, are you the Messiah, or are we supposed to look for another? Wait a minute, the greatest man in the world's questioning Jesus? John baptized Jesus. John knew about his ministry. But in the pressures of life, even the strongest lose hope. So if you've kicked yourself on more than one occasion for maybe your faith isn't strong enough and you don't, can't maintain hope and your emotions are ruling and you're not so far off from John. I don't know, perhaps misery enjoys company, but I find some comfort in the fact that if the greatest man on earth, as Jesus calls him, had his moments of doubt and struggle, there's room for the rest of us. I find hope there. Verses 19 and 20 give us some insight more into Herod's wife, Herodias. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John. Here's her grudge. She doesn't like the fact that John is standing against her marriage to Herod. She wants to kill him. She's about to find a way. 
But she was not able to kill him because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So Herod, in his fear, is protecting John. When Herod heard John, he was, when he heard him talk, he was greatly puzzled by him. He just liked to listen to him. He was sort of amazed with John. He could speak so boldly, such a hard message. He knows John's from God at some level. So as ruler, he protects him. He won't let Herodias carry out her grudge to kill him. It's interesting that Herod in the New Testament, this particular Herod, would eventually stand trial over another great man, the God-man Jesus. Remember when Jesus was on trial right before his crucifixion, he went through several different trials, and he was before Pilate, and Pilate didn't know what to do with him. Who'd he send him to? Herod, same guy. Herod faced the two greatest men on the face of the earth, Jesus, God-man, and the greatest man who ever lived, John. And in both cases, he messed up. He could have worked toward preserving their lives. Instead, he used his power to approve of their deaths, Jesus and John. So much for wishing like you could be like Herod in that day. I mean, he was really off track. Verses 21 and following, now we see Herod's act of destruction towards John, how he wipes John out, how he got tricked into it. Verse 21 gives us more of the soap opera story. Finally, the opportune, uh, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a great banquet for his high officials, military commanders, leading men of Galilee. Uh, It's his birthday. In the ancient days, the pagans celebrated birthdays. Not only did they celebrate, but they were very pagan in their celebrations. Would you notice it's men that attend? It is a stag party. And the alcohol was flowing. And there was a lot of riotous stuff going on. In the midst of all of that, the daughter of Herodias, now I have no idea why Herodias would have allowed her daughter to go into those drunken guys to dance, but she lets it happen. Or some think Herod called for her to come and dance. What's wrong with Herod having his stepdaughter come in and dance for a bunch of drunks? The daughter of Herodias came in and danced, and she pleased Herod And his dinner guests, yeah, she got into their heads and hearts. And the king says to her, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. Now please understand, he was not in any position to give anything. This is the alcohol talking. This is the braggadocious man talking with all of his friends there, and he wants to seem so powerful. He is called the king. In reality, he's a puppet king under Caesar. He's called a tetrarch. He ruled a certain area there in that, that place. He didn't have anything to give anybody. 
But he says to Herodias' daughter, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. The next couple of verses takes us further into the story. And he promised her with an oath. Would you believe this guy's word? I mean, it's not worth a whole lot when it comes to marriage. He takes his own brother's wife. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and she said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Hey, mommy, what should I ask for? He's giving me anything. And she says, get the head of John. Now, her grudge comes clearly into focus and she's found a way. Maybe she planted her daughter there dancing before those guys. We don't know the details. But this is her moment. She's got Herod been over a barrel and she's going to get what she wants the head of John the Baptist she asks her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist next verses and at once the girl hurried to the king with a request I want you to give me right now not a year or two right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter the king was greatly distressed Oh, that word, greatly distressed. In the Greek New Testament language, it was the same word used of Jesus in the garden where he was suffering tremendously before the cross and he asked for the cup to be taken from him. He's sweating drops of blood, great inner distress. Herod realizes he can no longer pr uh, protect John. He... And be, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he, he wants to save face. He did not want to refuse her. So as the next couple verses say, and so he immediately sent the executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back the head on a platter. Think of the irony of the moment. This is a big banquet. The gluttons are at work. And the head comes back on a dinner platter. Isn't that ironic? On hearing this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. They buried the remains of his body. Quite a soap opera. On that day, on that day, John is released from this life, and he moves to a far better life. This is the end of the life of the greatest man who ever lived. He was faithful to the end. He would not back down on his commitments to hold God's standards. His life ends up counting for eternity and Jesus underscores him as the greatest man who ever lived. His life stands as a challenge to you and me. In the midst of the redemptive history of our God, working his plan out and using John to prepare the way for Jesus, and then John, his job is done, he can now go home. His life counts for eternity. He played the part he was to play. His life challenges us to be different. He was the guy who dressed differently and was out there in the wilderness, 
eating locusts and wild honey. He was the guy who was very bold to hold to the standards of God. Even the religious leaders were called to task by John. Even the puppet king, Herod, is called to task by John. He was faithful. He might not have had success as the world counts success, but Jesus says, greatest man who ever lived. That's a perspective changer right there. Where are you at today in your walk with God? Have you been caught with things of this world and you need more of John's boldness? Courage to take a very strong and clear stand for God's standards. Understand, many people will not like it. And some, some will persecute you for it. But John's life stands as a testimony. This is how people of faith live. This is how they die. As we wrap this up today, I want to challenge any of you in this room and online with us today who have never trusted Christ as salvation. You've thought your own good works would get you to heaven or you're hoping they will. You're hoping you can outscore someone else. This is not a scoring on a curve. You're better than someone else to get in. You're not as sinful. According to the Bible, not one of us is going to make it apart from our sin being punished. And Jesus came into this world to be punished for our sins. A guarantee of salvation is available for your soul. You can't earn it. It's available to you because Jesus loved you and died for your sin. Would you bow your heads with me, please? In this closing moment of time on the sermon here, before our last song, this is a moment that you can make an eternal transaction between you and a holy God who can't have your sin in his presence. But your sin can be forgiven because Jesus died for those sins. Would you come to him right now and in the thoughts of your heart and mind, just offer a silent prayer, just saying, God, forgive me of my sin. I know I need forgiveness. Tell him that you believe Jesus died for your sin. He took your punishment. Ask him to forgive you. He will, for this is his plan. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the challenge of this great man's life. May we be people who live by faith, fully committed to you. Something rulers don't understand, religious leaders don't understand. John stands against them, and it is to his credit for your glory. We thank you for his testimony. May we be bold in Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.